Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Cold War wasn't limited to nuclear tensions and competitions between the great powers. What's often overlooked is that major transformations took place in the 1950s and 60s across West Africa. As power transferred from European powers like Britain and France to new independent African nations, change wasn't always smooth and it wasn't always consistent. In fact, the French and the British took very different approaches to decolonization, and these were plagued by Cold War politics and influenced surprisingly by West Germany and by Israel, who were conducting their own competition on the continent. And all of this packaged together had stark implications for modern war, conflict and security in West Africa today. I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast. And to take us through this history, we have Professor Marco Weiss from Lancaster University. Marco is the author of a new book, Post-Colonial Security, Britain, France and West Africa's Cold War. That's published by Oxford University Press. And so he is the perfect person to take us through this fascinating period. Hi Marco, welcome to Warfare. How are you doing today? Hi James, I'm doing very well. Slightly tired because of a flight. You're a bit tired too, potentially, but yeah, thanks for having me. But this topic is going to electrify us both, kick us into action and engage us. I have no doubt about that at all, because it is really great to have you on the podcast. I've been fascinated for years now about the history of Western intervention, politics, wars across the African continent. And I've been fortunate enough to travel out and work with colleagues in the Sahel, specifically Niger, and across Ghana on modern Western intervention in the region, and also the rise of terrorism around that region. But I'm really keen to hear from you about the history of all of this, how we got to where we are, of Britain and France's role in West Africa's Cold War. And indeed, this is where your work focuses on that journey from history to how we are today. Should we start with maybe trying to define what Britain and France's post-colonial security role is in Africa today? And then we can maybe discuss how we got to where we are. Yeah, I think these are all pertinent questions here. And thanks for your interest, because not always everybody's that interested in sort of the post-colonial African security architecture. 
some people neglect it at their own peril. Because, of course, if we look at the demographics in Africa, the economic potential of Africa, and especially the exponential economic growth, and it's still one of the markets where, you know, companies can actually build, you know, substantial growth potential rates. So it's important to look at it. And of course, also is the constant continuous security difficulties that Africa faces, even though the conflicts and the casualties have to some extent reduced since the end of the Cold War. If we sort of work our way back from the current situation, what is striking and what motivated me to work on the book that just recently came out on post-colonial security in Africa was actually that if you look at France's and Britain's roles in post-colonial Africa, especially today, what you see was that since independence of African colonies, I mean the former French colonies in West Africa, you can see recurrent French military interventions. You can see French military bases. Still now you have French military bases in Africa, so a heavy French military footprint. And you mentioned the Sahel before, of course, with Operation Bargan, where the French were heavily present. I mean, of course, winding down, that's caused a lot of <laughs> problems around it these days with, of course, the Russians now in Mali. But then if you compare this substantial French military presence in uh, today's Africa and these uh, recurrent interventions since independence with Britain's role, Britain's military footprint is extremely limited. We know that Britain still trains in Kenya, but not military bases uh, like the French do. There's not recurrent British interventions. And if you look, of course, at uh, British intervention in Sierra Leone at the turn of the last millennium, that was the exception confirming the rule. It was not something that was happening from time to time, but such as the French case. I mean, the French, uh, there's hardly a year, I'm slightly exaggerating perhaps, when they're not intervening. My take on it was to start working my way back. And I was especially struck when I was still working in more contemporary affairs when I was visiting Cote d'Ivoire just one year after the end of the post-electoral crisis. And I had dinner at a French military base in Portbouy in Abidjan. And I was just struck, you know, the nonchalance that it's just pretty normal that the French are the ultimate arbiter there. For France, Africa was always more important than it was for Britain. Britain with the British Raj, Singapore and so on, everything east of Suez was more significant from a strategic perspective. So the late colonial period, as you call it, I'm assuming here we're talking about the late 1950s, early to mid 1960s. And it's at this point that both Britain and France have to make decisions about how they're going to reshape their relationship with the African continent. Is this something that is dictated by the British and the French? Are they the ones with the agency, the power and control here? Is this a matter of France trying to keep its economic interests, its security interests in the region, and Britain just pretty much bankrupt after the Second World War and trying to move back from places like India to roll back empire and to concentrate on the metropole to try and keep the United Kingdom afloat. Is it those nations, those empires that are making these decisions or do we need to put this back into the hands of the West African nations themselves in the way that they started to shape this relationship in terms of what they wanted? Yeah, I think that is really the key question here. What you have following the Second World War is Britain and France, they want to rebuild their great power roles, right? Especially France, humiliated, of course, in the Second World War. Britain, victorious, but bankrupt largely. So moral victor, but financial loser. There was this idea dating back to the interwar period of uh, Eurafrica. So this idea of mobilizing 
Africa's potential for their strength, of course, with all the negative racial connotations and so on and so forth. But what you have is they're both temporarily, immediately after the Second World War, are quite keen to work even together. And that lasts into the 50s. But then, of course, there's a divergence following the Suez crisis, where Britain decides to team up with the Americans in fighting not only the Cold War in Europe, but also the global Cold War. And the French want to carve out a more independent role, especially uh, once de Gaulle gets back into power. They have their agenda. And both, ultimately, during the transfer of power, want to maintain their security role in Africa in order to strengthen their world role, in order to ensure that their economic interests are uh, guaranteed in these areas, of course, with discovery of oil or cocoa crops, etc., and so forth. It's really this African agency, I mean, this ability to ultimately shape the defence relationship. If we look at both cases, I mean, for instance, in the British case, I look specifically at Britain and Nigeria. So what you can see once independence for Nigeria is guaranteed and promised by the British, you can really see that their leverage is increasing and that they are increasingly able to dictate the terms. They can then say, okay, you really want to have this defense agreement? Well, then you have actually to give us something in return. So more weapons, more military assistance, more training, better economic conditions, etc., etc. But then it goes further because then the population becomes a bit more anti-colonial, pan-Africanist. And there's, of course, criticism perhaps by neighbouring Kwame Nkrumah, considered a radical, of course, at the time by Western Cold War powers. And then they say, well, look, there's this pressure from the street. And eventually the British decide, well, we have to abrogate the defence agreement. Then leads increasingly these anti-colonial mechanisms to Britain being, to some extent, pushed out or at least having its role reduced in the Nigerian security sector. Now, if we move to Cote d'Ivoire, it's quite a different scenario. Similar to the leader at the time in Nigeria, Sir Abu Bakar Tafeva Baleva, Ufebwani, Felix Ufebwani, the Ivorian leader, he's staunchly Francophile. Abu Bakar in Nigeria, he's staunchly Anglophile. But the difference is, of course, also the political system and the person itself. So if we look at Ufebwani, he served in various French governments in the 50s as a minister, backs very much De Gaulle's community, the kind of French community, sort of which was perhaps a last-ditch French attempt to maintain its empire. In so doing, he's really part of this French project of French grandeur, big ambition of the goal of making France a power. But he also thinks about the economic and social development of Cote d'Ivoire, and he thinks this can only be done with French protection. So when then with the independence of the Mali Federation, which at the time was made up of Senegal and Mali, when they achieve independence, and this provokes the French community to unravel, he then is completely disappointed because he thought, well, it was fine being in the French community, have the French community army protecting Cote d'Ivoire. He didn't want to have an Ivorian army. He was happy to rely on the French and he was disappointed. And then he almost clashed with the Gaulle because there was no other choice for him than to go for outright independence. But that then put him into such a strong negotiating position that he could then for himself, for his country and for his allied countries that were organized under the Council of the Entente at the time, he could then extract a lot from the French. What he had to was to always say, well, you don't give me what I want, I go to the Americans. I mean, de Gaulle and his right-hand man in Africa, or his Monsieur l'Afrique, Jacques Focard, I mean, they were obsessed with the United States. And by the way, on a side note, what's fascinating, if you look at American documents, they're like, yeah, the French should take care of it, right? We're only going to do something if they 
can't take care of it or they're pushed out. But if you look at Paris's thinking, it's like, oh, no, the Americans, they want to steal Africa from us. This brings us to this dynamic where you can have Ufa Boigny as the leader of Cote d'Ivoire. This is something that was repeated in a number of other former colonies, perhaps not as forcefully as in Cote d'Ivoire. But what you can really see is this leverage they have in the kind of market for military assistance that is created by a decolonizing Africa and the Cold War especially in these two cases of Nigeria and Cote d'Ivoire, firmly Western-oriented countries, at least in terms of the leadership, what you really have is, okay, both don't go to the Soviet bloc for military assistance or China, they wouldn't dream of that, but there's always the specter. Leads, for instance, Britain say, okay, well, if the West Germans build up the Nigerian Air Force instead of us, it's annoying, but at least it's them. For the French, it's slightly different, but of course, they know that Ufabwani would never go to the Soviets. They're really afraid and protective that it could, would even go to someone else. So you can really see this difference, whereas Britain had a Cold War mindset in approaching its former colonies, France had a neo-colonial mindset. And this neo-colonial mindset is, of course, still very much there if you look at France's role and thinking about Africa. Post-colonial security relationships of Britain and France are markedly different following the transfer of power and early independence period. And is there also the factor here that Britain had many other things on its mind here, so perhaps wasn't as committed to the African continent, whereas the French had the resolve to stick at it and to work out these negotiations. I don't know what it was like in terms of the communities within these countries and whether or not there was more of a grassroots move to remove the British compared to the French, so it might have been easier for the French. But does this also explain this strange situation in my head today where you have this very very heavy french military presence that you mentioned i've been walking through Nîmes. i've been to the french bases down there i've been and inspected french reaper drones i know exactly what the french military presence is in those parts of the country i recently wrote an article showing what different western actors have in terms of military deployments in the sahel specifically and the british supply maybe a, a chinook here or there or a transport helicopter a few training troops but it's nothing compared to what you would expect given the colonial legacy. So does that also help explain it slightly? Is it just simply this This meant more to the French? In a nutshell, yes. If you look historically, going back to the First World War, for instance, African manpower, hugely important for France. African colonies for the French imperial prestige, hugely important. That was, of course, even further reinforced with the Second World War when the French a free France organized from Brazzaville in Africa. So the strategic depth that Africa would offer France, that was always kept in mind. And then, of course, during the Cold War, having a former French colonies voting with France in the United Nations. Uh, if you think of Algeria, Oufebouani, uh, of Cote d'Ivoire, voting with the French on a colonial question. And they, this made, of course, Oufebouani a horrible man for people such as Franz Fanon, Kwame Nkrumah, and so on. They hated him, of course, because of that. He was uh, colluding with the colonial power. Now, for Britain, of course, East of Suez was always more important. What you had, however, and that's something I show, is that during the transfer of power, there was a moment, especially following the Iraqi revolution in 58, when there was the potential air route for Britain. And under Duncan Sandys in the late 1950s, of course, uh, when he was uh, Secretary of Defence, 
there was still the importance east of Suez and the idea of having a global role for Britain with more mobile units being able to be deployed in modern terms, rapid reaction forces that could be sent out. And for that, you needed air route. And Nigeria was important for the trans-African air route to its east of Suez, especially, as I said, in light of the Middle Eastern air barrier following 58 with the Iraq revolution. But that was temporary. And then it wasn't that important anymore from a broader strategic perspective. So, of course, they could let go. And Britain was still trying to find a role. And that was very much the case and leading then to the withdrawal east of Suez being decided in the late 60s. Then France, of course, had also the economic power at the time, because the 60s, especially the early 60s, were unprecedented economic growth in France. Everything was going well. And so they had more power. But it was also, I think, the French commitments, especially first after Indochina, and then after Algeria, they could focus more on something specific, which was Africa. Whereas Britain had a bit an iron in the fire all over the place. So they couldn't focus as much. But then coming back to actually the local level, I think what is absolutely key, and that's something I try to show, is, of course, the non-democratic nature of, for instance, the Ivorian regime. Nigeria was a dysfunctional democracy, but it was nevertheless a democracy. That meant you had an opposition that in parliament could criticize the kind of what they considered being a neo-colonial collusion with Britain. Then you had demonstrations in the street, so you had pressure building up against the policy of the government that had a proclaimed policy of non-alignment. So they were told, well, stand up to this policy of non-alignment. Why are you only getting British or other Western weapons? Why don't you get Soviet weapons? And then, of course, there was a kind of nuance, which is more anti-colonial than anti-Western, this approach. But so there was pressure. There was a free media that could criticize. Now, in Cote d'Ivoire, for instance, it was very different. He ruled rather ruthlessly, Félix Oufebouani. It was a one-party state. He was quite paranoid that there would be subversion against him. And then with the help of the French, well, he had potential opposition figures or anyone supposedly conspiring against him in almost paranoid fashion being rounded up with the help of the French who were militarily present on the ground. But to such an extent that the French were even a bit worried for their image, because they were almost too involved in all that. And he wanted to have small Ivorian armed forces, because, of course, he counted on the French for ultimately the protection of himself and his regime. And when the French actually tried to restructure their forces in Africa towards the middle, I mean, with broader defense reform going on towards the middle of the 1960s, he pulled all the strings he could to keep the French military presence in Port-Boué next to Abidjan. So completely different, of course, from the Nigerian case. And when Abu Bakar Tafewa Baleva was assassinated in the so-called Major's coup in early 1966, what he said, well, had he done like myself and kept the British, like I kept the French, he would still be in power and he wouldn't be dead. So a completely different thinking on the ground. But Ufrebwani could only do that because he ruled Cote d'Ivoire without any opposition and any potential opposition was sent to prison or had to pledge their allegiance to him. Aeroplanes, spacesuits, 
condoms, coffee, plastic surgery, warships. Over on the patented podcast by History Hit, we bring you the fascinating stories of history's most impactful inventions and the people who claim these ideas as their own. We uncover exceptional stories behind everyday objects. We managed to put two men on the moon before we put wheels on suitcases. Unpack invention myths. So the prince's widow immediately becomes certain. Thomas Edison stole her husband's invention and her husband disappeared around the same time, can only have been eliminated by Thomas Edison, who at the time is arguably the most famous person in the West. And look backwards to understand technologies that are still in progress. You know, when people turn around to me and say, oh, why would you want to live forever? Life's rubbish. I just think that's a bit sad. I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. And the thing that really makes it worthwhile is the fact that you could make it go on forever. So subscribe to Patented from History Hit on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to catch new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And so this element of a fledgling Nigerian democracy allowed for a differentiating of who it was that the politicians might go and and court favours from, might try and help build up this new independent sovereign state of of Nigeria. So who was vying for power? Who was challenging the British there? Who was challenging the French more broadly for power in the region? You mentioned China, and of course China had the Bangdung Conference in 1955, where they saw themselves as a also a former colonial nation and, and a partner for the African continent. They still do today. We know this with the Belt and Road Initiative around the world and their economic relations with these states and also military relations. We know China has a policy of non-interference, so it doesn't matter what type of regime it is, you can still deal 
with China. So was China a problem then? Uh, was the Soviet Union a bit of an issue? You mentioned about Russia today and, and the Wagner Group and their increasing role in trying to vie for power again against the French and other Western nations. Specifically, the Germans have invested a lot of money in places like the Sahel and the European Union as well. Was Germany another competitor at this period in time? Who was competing in the region? Yeah, really good question. I mean, what I try to show is what is really interesting. I think that if you look at the so-called, what were considered at the time, moderate or conservative African states, and with Nigeria and Cote d'Ivoire being the Anglophone and Francophone, respectively, heavyweights in the sub-region, they would never have turned to the Soviets. Nigeria, because the previously mentioned democracy, they had to pay some lip service and do some economic arrangements with the Soviets. Let's not forget, during the Nigerian Civil War, 67, with the British and the Americans not giving fighter aircraft or other major weapon systems to the Nigerians, they would ultimately turn to the Soviets who would then offer meeks, right? But then that was a kind of an intermezzo, one could say. I mean, they were like Sandhurst-trained officers to some extent. They were not that keen, even the military rulers later, on Soviet hardware. They took it because they had to. It's only the spectre of the Chinese and the Soviets that sometimes motivates the British to give in to Nigerian demands or to accept that they would turn to another Western provider of military assistance or Commonwealth provider of military assistance for as long as they wouldn't turn to Soviets. Anyone else better than the Soviets. In the Ivorian slash French case, what you could really see is this Again, this paranoia about the Americans. There's no concern whatsoever about China and the Soviet Union. I mean, Ufe Boigny, for instance, fiercely anti-communist. But of course, in neighboring countries, the Soviets were present, like Guinea, Ghana, Mali. And of course, if you think back, a form of Soviet military assistance might still have left over some links with today's Malian armed forces, right? That's why, of course, rebuilding some connections is actually not that difficult today. But coming back perhaps to the more moderate or conservative countries, for instance, China was a major concern for Ufe Boigny, not so much for the French, because at the time, of course, de Gaulle, he had a kind a rather open policy towards communist China, whereas the Americans didn't. And that brought Ufe Boigny closer to the Americans because they shared his concerns about the Chinese. This, again, of course, irritated the French because they thought he was going, getting closer to the nasty Americans who wanted to steal him from the French, and so on and so forth. And I think this is something which is quite funny to see. Now, looking actually at those who managed to get a foot into the security sector or, let's say, market for military assistance in these countries, in the Nigerian case, what is fascinating is to see that it was actually West Germany that became quite significant because it was them who built up the Nigerian Air Force. The British were keen, the Royal Air Force was keen to do that. They had built up the Nigerian Navy, the Nigerian Army. So it was a given, like, why wouldn't we do the build-up? They asked themselves, of course. But for the Nigerians, that was at the time when they abrogated the defence agreement with the British because of too much pressure in Parliament and the streets. So they wanted to show their anti-colonial credentials without turning, however, to a leading Cold War power. What better country there than West Germany? Well, Germany was a major Cold War protagonist, right? West Germany fighting its own parallel Cold War with West Germany, being on the front line of the Cold War in Europe. So interesting choice. And for the Nigerians, however, it's more important to say, well, they're not a colonial power or they haven't been a colonial power for a long time, which is interesting again. And then 
well, you know, they have a Nazi past. So even in Nigerian newspapers, it was written like, they have a Nazi past, but, you know, the Germans today are not the Nazis of the Second World War. They're not the same racists anymore, so actually we can do business with them. For as long as we don't have to have it done by the British, who are the former colonial power. Another potential provider who was in discussions were the Canadians. And the Canadians were interesting because for the Brits, it was like, oh, we could actually do stuff together with the Canadians and help the Nigerians because, well, we've worked together for a long time. It's a Commonwealth country. It's a NATO country. So all good. Now, the Canadians, they were happy to help with some training and so on, but they did not become a major player. But the Canadians were nevertheless in post-colonial Africa relatively significant in terms of military assistance. Another interesting actor, the Indians. They were a non-aligned country. That was key for Nigeria because, of course, they wanted to show their non-aligned credentials. What better country to have for that than Nehru's India? So they became actually responsible for building up the Nigerian military academy. Again, to the great annoyance of the British, who thought that was a given that they would build it up. What that built was a kind of a security sector where you had, let's say, lesser Western Cold War powers or lesser Western powers involved. You also had the Dutch providing a ship, for instance, and you had India as a non-aligned Commonwealth country also playing a role. Now, if we look at the Ivorian security sector, what is interesting to see is that you had a different scenario because Ufewani, he wanted to rely predominantly on the French. He was mainly playing with the idea of other military assistance, whether it's the Americans or other, let's say, European NATO countries, just to get more out of the French. So it was mainly at the kind of threat level that he would do. He wouldn't actually go all the way. He would accept some minor military assistance from the Americans, but that was mainly, again, to get more from the French, because he really wanted to be in this kind of Francosphere, and he wanted to be able to count on the French and built also this kind of, I mean, a real friendship, one can say. They were partners in crime in Africa, also with what they did in relation to the Congo, what they did in relation to Biafra later on, with Jacques Foucault, uh, whom I mentioned already, uh, de Gaulle's Monsieur Lafrique. However, what is interesting to see, there was one actor who actually managed to get into the Ivorian security sector, at first with the acceptance, but then to the great annoyance of the French, and that was Israel. People think, well, what does a small country, especially at the time, small, not that powerful country, early 60s, do there? But similar like West Germany and Nigeria, who wanted to gain friends in Africa, Israel was in the Arab-Israeli conflict, so it wanted to gain friends in Africa who would strengthen its role in the world or its position in the world and notably in the United Nations. So it managed to get its way into Ivorian security sector through a more almost civilian rather than a military route, but which had then military connotations and became increasingly a military route. What happened was that the French, they were actually quite close to the Israelis who were supporting with military assistance the Israelis, I mean, arms sales in the early 60s, quite extensively, that was France. So they had a good understanding and Israel also didn't seem too threatening to the French. They then became responsible for the so-called Ivorian civic service, which was something where young Ivorians would work in agriculture, but with paramilitary dimension or militia dimension. And this was sort of connected to military service and the Ivorian army. And this kind of training and build-up of the civic service was given ultimately to the Israelis. And what's interesting, 
the Ivorans had asked the French to help more with that, but they were quite like, well, that's not that important. That's not that much of a military endeavor. But when it then gained a more military dimension, when the Israelis were building it up, there were some people, especially those responsible for military assistance in France and on the ground, of course, who said, well, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? Because they are gaining an increasing role, which then encroaches on our training prerogatives of the Ivorian army. So then they started pushing back and tried to push them out as much as possible. And when in one of Ufewani's frequent purges, his defense minister ended up in prison, who had been the most vociferous advocate of an Israeli role in Ivorian defense, then again, the French succeeded to roll back, to push them back, the Israelis, and gain the upper hand again, even though the Israeli role persisted. The Israelis contributed to the buildup of civic services in a number of Francophone African countries, so they were a quite important actor. The Ivorians were not too concerned about the West Germans because there was a bit of an understanding between them that the Germans would help propping up French neocolonialism in Africa, but would not try to carve out too much of a space. Of course, they had no such hesitations in the case of Britain, which was trying to find its way into DEC after, of course, having stayed out of it proactively and then having a change of heart, of course, in the 1960s. So there, the Germans, they wouldn't hesitate to take some space or some influence away from the British for their own influence. That is fascinating. I knew nothing about the Indian involvement, the West German involvement, the Israeli involvement, that game over over weapons supplies, over arms industries that was going on, and has really, I suppose, played a role in shaping the fates of these nations today. And, it, and I suppose this is my final question to you, and it's a broad one, a difficult one, probably based on some assumptions on my part, so tell me if I'm wrong. But to what extent does this Nigerian democracy that has the ability to draw upon quite a diverse range of military supplying, arming actors when it needs to, to what extent does that play a role in the fact that Nigeria has a comparatively stable security situation if you perhaps disregard the fact that there is a resurgence of uh, Boko Haram, which is now Islamic State in West Africa, in the north of the country. If you take that for one side, and then you combine it with this less democratic, incredibly rigid relationship between the Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire, and the French, and the insecurity, the instability that is being spread across that region and the Sahel more broadly recently, does that have a connecting factor back to this history that you're talking about? Is there a reason why one region is perhaps more stable than the other? Yeah, I think this is a fascinating question because, of course, as someone who would like to counter-argue to what you're saying is would say, like, well, James, 67, civil war in Nigeria, you know, the Biafra war. Well, already before early 66, you have a military coup. Then later in 66, in July, you have again a counter-coup. and then. You go on after a general go on comes down in the early 70s. There's another military dictatorship. So it's quite a bit of a mess, Nigeria. And of course, we all remember in recent news, Boko Haram and all the security situation difficulties in Nigeria, the attacks in the Niger Delta, the abductions. And then we sort of go back to Cote d'Ivoire, 
and look at it, well, it was extremely stable for the whole period up to the beginning of the crisis when it set in, let's say, late 90s, but especially from 2002 when the country was pretty much split in half and it was only resolved, but you know how resolved it really is, that's debatable, with the French intervention in 2011, which was, of course, the determining factor. But then again, I agree with you. I would say this kind of heavy French involvement, propping up dictators, not allowing for even an attempt at democracy for a very long time, until perhaps the opening up in the early 90s, well, it kept the lid on it, but it actually it created a kind of a fake stability. By taking the lid off, you could then see what happened. And the problem is that the French have then to always again to intervene. So if you look at Cote d'Ivoire, they intervened in the early 2000s because it was getting out of control and they had interests, of course. Then they became a kind of peacekeeper. And what they usually do once they don't like being a peacekeeper anymore, what, what they did in Mali with MINUSMA, of course, well, let's farm it out to the UN again. We intervene, we create or contribute to potentially making it better, but often create a mess and then outsource it again to the United Nations. They tried to outsource it temporarily to the European Union in the 2000s, but that didn't work that well. And it actually dampened the appetite in the European Union for external operations. But then if we look at Nigeria, one could almost think, well, they went with this kind of more democratic approach at the beginning to quite a few crises. But what you could also see is, of course, this dramatic corruption that was already rampant at the time. And of course, also the ethnic tensions, the uh, regional tensions that were very visible in Nigeria. But perhaps because of Britain not being all powerful in Nigeria and not being able to always just intervene and you know, keep someone in power, putting someone in power. Perhaps this allowed Nigeria to experiment more and ultimately now be almost better functioning. But then I know a Nigeria expert would, of today's Nigeria would immediately say, but what are you talking about? Do you know how corrupt Nigeria is? But nevertheless, there is a democratic element. There is a past democratic experience. And the question is now, what kind of processes uh, Cote d'Ivoire will go through? But I think what is very different in Nigeria is that if you're in Nigerian politics, you might have the army in your favor, you have, might have them against, you might have politicians against, you might have populations against you. But ultimately, you know, it's not that suddenly the French can say they don't like you and might you know, be able to put you in power, depose you or something like that. I think that's what struck me in Cote d'Ivoire. It's still, if you go there, you still have the French military base there. And, you know, they're the ultimate arbiter in the Ivorian security sector or even political order. So it's very different in that sense, I would say. Perhaps another thing that is interesting is in Cote d'Ivoire, of course, the armed forces, they have always been neglected in terms of the investment because Ufebwani wanted to keep them small. He didn't want them to be powerful that they could suddenly overthrow him. And if you look at one of his various purges in the 60s, he even relied on the French who disarmed his own armed forces and then he threw military leaders into prison. Only later he would take them back, but he never trusted them. He trusted the French more than his own armed forces. Whereas in Nigeria, what we can see is a proper military buildup. You can see an expansion of the armed forces with their role in the first UN Congo operation. Then, of course, there's a dramatic increase of military forces during the Nigerian civil war with later reductions, but not completely. But you can see Nigeria was a country where 
the armed forces had more significance from the start than in the case of Cold d'Ivoire. What I can affirmatively say with my research is that I can explain why Britain's not that much present anymore and why France is still so heavily present. Now, as to today's domestic security situation, I can give you tentative answers with a broad brush over decades, but I can't give you completely, you know, affirmative answer. This is why it's like that in Nigeria, and this is why it's like that in Cote d'Ivoire or other French colonies more broadly. But I think ultimately that this fact is recurrent. The French retaining their security role in Francophone Africa and their recurrent military interventions, they have held back a certain development of these columns, whether for good or bad, but it nevertheless had a major impact ultimately. And I think it's holding countries back and it has held them back for a long time. Absolutely. And as you say, these are all theories, interpretations. They're all up for challenging. But either way, such an interesting history, Marco. Thank you so much for coming on the Warfare Podcast. And you've got to tell us, where can people read more about this? Where can we hear more about your work? Well, thank you very much, first of all, for having me, James. Really great pleasure to be on here. My book came out in 2021 called Postcolonial Security. Britain, France and West Africa's Cold War, published with Oxford University Press. And of course, I published a number of articles and journals can be seen on my profile at Lancaster University. I'm heavily involved in the Centre for War and Diplomacy at Lancaster University, and we have our own podcast series. So please do check it out. It's available on Apple, Spotify and Anchor. And the number of episodes on military history and the history of international relations, war and diplomacy, current affairs, ranging from the medieval period to today. So please do check it out. And we also run a number of events. And please come and attend or if they're online, attend them online. Perfect. Everyone go and check out that podcast, buy the book, attend the events. Marco, thank you so much for your time. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you very much, James. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War, and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day, from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross, and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.